Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Your Fab Life podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing attorney, entrepreneur, and author Kiara Amani as we dive into the mental health challenges of highly successful people. Welcome, everybody, uh, back to the Your Fab Life podcast. Today, we have attorney, entrepreneur, and new author, uh, Kiara, on the call with us today uh, for this episode. Um, Kiara, we're going to jump into the book, of course. I know everyone wants to hear a little bit more directly from the author. This great book that you've written called Therapy isn't just for white people. Uh, but before we jump into that, um, the, 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 the message in this episode is geared towards highly um, highly successful individuals that sh- struggle with mental health. So, you know, I know with your own personal journey, um, which uh, obviously with the book, it's part memoir, right? Um, so you, you, you talk about those things, um, but you have a lot of people out there that again, um, are struggling with mental health challenges because they are highly successful and um, I got this from your book signing. Uh, remind me of your host again at your book signing. Her name, I don't uh, want to. Dominique, Dominique DePrima. Dominique DePrima from um, the radio station here in LA. She hosted your part and she said something that really stuck with me, which was pretty, you know, you're pretty. So, you know, you can't have cancer. Like, so because you're successful, you can't be unhappy. Because you're successful, you know, everything is great in your life. And it's like one doesn't necessarily equal the, the other. You can still be struggling and have a very um, beautiful outside, right? Um, whether it be in terms of looks or it could just be success, you know? And so people don't understand, first of all, what it takes to be so highly driven and successful and because you know sacrifices are made unfortunately you know you're going to have ups and downs into your mental health and so I will discuss more of that topic as we get into the second half of your interview with your book but I first just wanted our 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 guests our listeners to find out a little bit more about you so I know you technically left your profession to start a new profession um, so I guess you can answer it however you, you feel fit, but what, what, why, why did you choose your profession? I guess starting with a lawyer and then author, do you think the profession kind of chose you or did you kind of choose it? Um, what are your thoughts? So I kind of fell in to being an attorney, graduated from UVA law school, and I always told myself I would not become a lawyer because my dad was a lawyer and I wanted to do anything but, but, you know, I was in college and was excelling in my politics classes and my philosophy classes. And I was like, huh, maybe there's more to the law than I actually considered. I think when you think about lawyer as a kid, you see people in the courtroom and fighting on behalf of murderers or dealing with adoption or maybe family law, but there's a very limited scope of what it means to be a lawyer in the media. And as I really started to look and consider what my options were, I found the world was very limitless. So 
I felt like the law made sense. And I'm so glad that I started my career in that way because I do very much consider myself a storyteller. And I started out working in corporate spaces, contract law, specifically in entertainment. And so much of my job was taking very complex legal matters, trying to explain things like force majeure and indemnification and breaking it down into very simple language so that my clients can understand what was going on. And so much of that skill I still use in my writing, right? Like in my book, Therapy Isn't Just for White People, I'm taking very complex issues. You could write an entire book about racial trauma in Black communities, but I'm just breaking them down into simple stories to help people understand why it's hard to be Black in America in 2022. So to answer your question, I kind of fell into it, but I fell into it by design. By design. Okay. I like that. I like that. Um, so I guess you kind of answered my second question, whether you be you're, whether you're being a lawyer or whether you're being an author, is your favorite part the storytelling part, like being able to break, break things uh, down? And it's funny that you said that because I never thought about it that way from the lawyer perspective. You truly are... Um, taking the understanding of one party or the under and understanding of maybe the party on the other side and trying to explain it in such a way so that it logically makes sense. And obviously you're applying various laws to, to the facts of whatever is happening. Um, but it, yeah, that there is, there is some explaining or storytelling that you do even, even, even as a lawyer. And definitely if you're a litigator, I mean, we were, so, uh, Listeners, uh, if you're listening, uh, we, Kara and I have a lot in common. So we're both lawyers. We're both former pageant girls. Uh, we're both from like DC, Maryland, Virginia area. We both went to UVA. So it's just like, I feel like she's, well, sometimes when I look at her, I'm like, I'm literally looking at myself, you know? So we have a lot, we have a lot in common. Um, and so, yeah, I, when I look at like like what you said, like what people think an attorney is and everything, especially with litigation. I mean, transactional too, but litigation. You're deaf. If you're a trial lawyer, you're definitely telling a story. I actually think it doesn't even matter sometimes whether someone's guilty or not. How can you tell the story? How can you tell the? Because a lot of times you're just convincing the jury anyway, right? And especially if it's criminal law, it's beyond reasonable doubt. So as long as you create just a little bit of doubt, even if they did it. Under the law, you can't find the person guilty. So if you have a really good storyteller um, and a lawyer, especially on the litigation side, um, no matter what area of law, it could be family law, criminal law, um, I think that definitely is an important skill set. So I've just never heard anybody say it that way. So <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely would say even in contract law, storytelling is my biggest asset. If I'm in a negotiation and I need the other side, to see it my way, I have to paint the picture of what could happen, what might happen, and why my way, my proposal is going to be better. So mm -hmm. I'm really telling a lot of stories about what the future could look like in order mm -hmm. for them to understand why I'm proposing what I'm proposing in the contract. So I think there's still a lot of essence of thinking critically and being creative and taking very big ideas and paring them down and communi communicating them in a way that resonates with people. And so when, when people hear, oh, you're a lawyer, but you're a writer and you're doing all these other things, how does that work together? In my mind, I'm like, I'm using the same. Hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. same skill sets. Well, 
and 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 we'll discuss this in a moment when we talk more about your book. I think part of the issue I have was being, you know, going to law school, becoming aware, and then trying to do other things is that it's almost like once you go to law school, like you can't be anything else. Like, no, like if you dare do anything else outside of that, it's like, well, what's wrong with you? Are you okay? I'll never forget there was a post. I'm sure you've seen it like a million times. I know you ignore stuff at this point. I think you were featured. It was something like with Beyonce had did a remix to a song. And you obviously you you and your dance partner were highlighted in her 24-hour story. And then it was like reposted, I think, in like maybe like an Oprah article or something like that. And then you had also you, you know, you were kind of known to do like, you know, your dance routines even before that on your page. And I'll never forget, I read some comment on small was like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, she's fine. She can go to law school and dance on her page. She can write a book and dance. I mean, is she not allowed to dance? And the crazy thing is you've never even been in like a super conservative corporate setting, even in, even with your legal background. It's been entertainment, it's been in-house and things like that. And I also shared that experience. I've worked, you know, in-house at Universal Music Group um, here in California at one point. So, like, even in our settings, it's not even super conservative. But again, it's just like that word lawyer. And it's like, it's like once you have that label, you know, sometimes it's really hard to um, do do other things. And I know I've I've personally struggled with that. Like, maybe I should post this, you know, you know, like just that that People that struggle. They definitely try to put you in the box. And yeah, I've gotten like, are you okay? Are you going through something? Why are you posting pictures or videos of yourself dancing? This isn't professional. Why are you always out in the world living your life? Shouldn't you just be behind a desk? Behind a desk, working as a lawyer. And it's always been so confusing. And I tell people all the time, I graduated from law school at 2015. So I've carried the title for a lawyer, what, six, seven years? Yeah, very long out. time. But I I was all these other things way before. before. I've always been a writer. I've always been a dancer. I've always been a creative. These titles applied long before the title lawyer was ever added to the list. So I don't know why anybody would think I would erase or delete or bury my past experiences because I have a new title that I've added. That's a very eloquent way of putting it. And you just reminded me have actually five things in common audience. We're also dancers. So I've danced since I was probably, I don't know, four, I did dance and cheerleading, probably more dance than cheerleading, but uh, I danced. I want to say, weren't you on the dance team at UVA? We both went to UVA. Yeah, I did a couple of dance teams. I was a dance team the first two years, uh, hip hop, and then competitive cheerleader my second two years. Your second yeah, that was I was captain of a cheerleading squad. I'm not just gonna not be creative and not utilize. Not want to dance anymore. It's just that erases yeah. now that I have this new title. Yeah, I mean, I've, 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 you know, similarly, my mom is like, you know, people just see you in all these gowns and going to all these events. I just don't think people take you seriously. I'm just like, well, you know what? I think the right people take me seriously. I think the people that really know the scope of who I am and understands that everything that I do, everything works hand in hand, everything touches. And even if it's sli- it slightly doesn't touch, it's okay for me to be, you know, ha- have a, a, a diversified like life or brand. You know, I, I, my goal is to empower, empower inspire, um, and to protect. 
that. So it doesn't matter what I'm doing. It could be media, entrepreneurship. It can be legal. I have to be doing at least one of those things. So for me, I'm never off track. I'm never like, why is she doing that? Like, that's never for me. But I think that's why it comes down to having a really strong understanding of like who you are and um, really only listening to the people that count. Because I'm like, the people that you're talking about, are they paying my bills this month? Like, are, are they are they buying, you know, buying my book or buying my T-shirt? Or are they supporting, like, are they doing anything with my business? Are they referring me clients? Like, you know, who are these people that they have so much to say, but they really don't technically affect my bottom line? Um, that's usually a way I also, before I get upset, I'm like, do these people really affect my bottom line? Yes, no. Most likely, no. Um, and so I just kind of ignore it. But, you know, our, our mothers. Um, <laughs> her mom is also very similar to my mom. So, you know, it's like, you know, and I know they come from a very traditional school. You know, you go to school, you get a certain career, you get paid every two weeks, you know, and it scares them when we try to venture anything, you know, from that, you know, it scares them. And, 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 and I understand they want us to be okay. They don't want us homeless, like your mom said when you, you know, became an author. So you, you quit your job. You want to be homeless? Want to that... be homeless. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you decided that you want to be homeless. Like, you know, so I, I share that sentiment when, you know, people talk about, again, being highly successful. And then a part of that highly successful, that that drive actually comes usually if you if you have parents that are also that way and have those expectations. And sometimes you have to decide is Am I doing this because I want to do it? You know, like, you know, even and even if I start, even in the beginning, if I did want to do it, am I still doing it because I want to do it or am I doing it for other reasons? And, and, and sometimes it takes a second for you to honestly um, answer that question. And that's why, you know, obviously things like therapy allow you to kind of do those breakdowns. And this is why therapy is so important. And this is why it's so important that again, no, you're not a, you know, we haven't added therapist or doctor or psychiatrist to your list. I don't think you'll be going back to school to add those titles anymore, but, but you're like, I'm done with school. But what I will say is that's why it's important that people know about your book, because again, this is from a uh, patient's perspective, not from you know, and I emphasize because some people are like, what book are you reading? Because um, I'm going to continue to tag you. I've just been taking a break from Instagram. But I have all these wonderful pictures of your book, like at the pool and at the beach and different just like therapeutic places. So I'm going to start tagging your, your page in it. But people are like, what is that book? What is that book? And I'm like, like a serious They're like, oh, okay. And then they're like, well, we thought she was a lawyer. And I'm like, yeah, she is a lawyer. This is, you know, perspective uh, from, uh, from a therapist. Uh, I'm sorry, from a patient. So um, with that being said, what would you say, because there are obviously, there may be obviously aspiring lawyers or authors or both, like you said, it could be someone out there that wants to do both, uh, which you've done very well, obviously. Um, what would you think is, what, what would you say is the most difficult part of maybe being a lawyer, generally speaking, and maybe the most difficult part of being an author up, up until this point from, from your experience so far? Yeah, so the lawyer piece, I would definitely say people attempting to put me in a box. I've never put myself in a box. I actually have a story about how I went to a legal conference and I have a nose ring, but it's like a, you know, a smaller nose yeah, ring. Yeah, it's like delicate, yeah. 
delicate. Sometimes I'll put put a hoop in there, but it's like a cute little hoop. And I've never thought deeply about it. I wanted a nose ring. So I got one and I was at a legal conference and a woman walked up to me and was like, you're so brave for wearing that here. And she wanted to take a picture to show her husband how a young millennial was brave enough to wear her nose ring to a legal conference. And I just thought it was so funny because I did not, it, I didn't feel it didn't even dawn on you. Yeah. That it was that big of a deal. I, I wasn't trying to make a statement or to stand out. It didn't feel like an act of rebellion. I simply just showed up to the conference as myself. So what I really heard was you're so brave to show up as who you truly are in a space where a lot of people are putting on airs and pretending to be a different version of themselves because they believe that's what it means to look successful. And that, you know, was, I think, very just representative of a lot of responses I've gotten from people as an attorney. I And I'm sure you get a lot of the same, I can't believe you're an attorney or you look so young or- right. Right. Oh my gosh. Like and, how- and and I think they think that they're kind of giving you a compliment, but it's, it actually kind of, you know, you can almost take it the other way. Like, oh, so I'm too young. You know, I'm so young. So you don't trust me with your work. Like, cause even yeah. they're young, young, you know, um, minority doctors or black doctors or just even women doctors. It's like, oh, you're a woman. Like, excuse me, where's the doctor? You know, if you're a woman, they assume you're not the doctor. If you're, you know, if you're not white, they assume that you're not the doctor. So, um, yeah, I think, I think, you know, and I know your mom, um, so, uh, for the audience, her, she basically has like the Huxtables in terms of the family, just the other way around. Her mom is the doctor and her dad, uh, is the lawyer. Um, but you know, it's, and why it shouldn't be such a statistic, like, you guys are kind of like unicorns. You really guys are like unicorns. It's very rare that you're going to have a family where you have two parents and those in those professions, especially in the, in the Black communities and Black families. It's almost unheard of. And if you guys uh, search her family in the New York Times, there's an article talking about how, because all of you guys, went, everybody went to UVA, right? Yeah. Whole family went to UVA. And so they talk about her family. And I just thought it was such a, interesting article because it's like yes it should be celebrated but it's crazy that that's like you know in a white family it it may be the norm it may not be that big of a deal that you have a family that like all went to UVA and one's you know the mama's you know a doctor the father is a lawyer the other way around so that that was really you say that because I was having a conversation with a white Jewish male who graduated from UVA and he was talking about his mental health struggles and you know I had put on I was biased and definitely was like what do you mean what are you struggling with (laughs) and he basically said as a white man the bar is set super high because I do really well for myself I work for a venture capitalist firm I'm not wanting for money I own a house but that just makes me like every other white person if I want to stand out as a white person I've got to be as successful as a Bill Gates or something. And whereas oh, you, you, so it's like ups the ante. Yeah, he's like you can be a lawyer and people are impressed. And uh, I, tr- I understood where he was coming from. Uh, also, I think there is a lot of lack of understanding of the black perspective. Like, do you know what it takes to be black and excel in corporate spaces? People are impressed, not just 
because of what we've been able to do, but because of the obstacles we've had to overcome in order to be able to do that. So I think there was a lack of understanding there. Uh, but to your point, just even thinking about the being a successful Black person, people already treat you like a unicorn. They don't know what to do with you. Yeah, <laughs> they don't. They really don't. And I just, again, I feel like as you become more successful, you know, God willing myself and my other peers, I just, I'm just hoping to change that, that, that narrative that whether you're a woman or you're a woman of color, you know, like, you know, that it'll start being more, more of the norm. I know we have a very long way um, to go and I'm happy that we've you know, hit strides like the first black president or the first black VP or the first black Supreme Court justice. Like, I don't want to take away from the strides that we we have made. But even if you look at what it took for them to even get in those positions, those people are criticized more than their counterparts. And I'm so I, 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 I really believe it's their race that brings in that additional criticism. I think their counterparts who may be, you know, again, white in those same roles, even when they make mistakes or things are misunderstood. It's just, you don't get the same sort of um, backlash. And so that's, you know, obviously the sentiment. Um, so um, what was I gonna say? Uh, so two more questions and then we'll do a few questions about the book. Um, who is your mentor or mentors, if any? So it's funny because I feel like I have mentors in so many different arenas and areas of my life. I would say right now, as it pertains to writing and storytelling and kind of the space that I'm sitting in, uh, a young woman named Nancy Red, who's also from Virginia. She was actually the first Black Miss Virginia, which is amazing, and New York Times bestselling author and has written several children's books since then. And I, she's been so instrumental in my process, even having somebody pave the way and say, hey, this is where you're trying to go this is what you're trying to do. I've done it. So let me tell you things that worked for me, tell you the things I would have done differently and give you a little bit of inside information as to how you can maybe happen, make it happen a little bit more quickly. And at every stage in my career, I've definitely made a point to find someone who's accomplished things in the realm of what I'm trying to accomplish and to listen to experiences and nobody's journey is exactly the same. And, you know, sometimes they might give you advice that you disagree with, but seeing somebody in this space where you hope to be one day, I think is incredibly invaluable, especially if they can give you advice and speak specifically to how to get there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so the only other question I had before we jumped into the book was what is, you know, I've had, obviously <clears throat> lawyers on this podcast before that give advice about law school and things like that and getting into law. But with your transition and becoming an author, I just know a lot of people that want to be authors. It doesn't matter what profession they are. They can be lawyers, they can be doctors, they can be teachers. There's so many people that want to write a book, I think, that are listening or will be listening to this, um, this episode. So what would be, I guess, like your top three pieces of advice if someone wants to write a book in terms of how to like successfully do that? Yeah. Uh, my first piece of advice would be don't wait. There's always, yeah, there, there's always something in your brain that tells you later or tomorrow or next week might be a better time. 
but really life is incredibly busy and hectic and every season brings its challenges. So start right now. You don't have to quit your job, give up the title of lawyer and take on the title of writer. You can be a writer today. All you have to do is pull out your laptop and begin writing. And I definitely did not wait to start doing my other creative things. And I was doing a lot of that while I had my full-time job. And I think when you're in a space where you know that your bills are taken care of and you're not having to worry about making a payment, it can actually free up a lot of creative space as opposed to quitting your job and then trying to jump into something creative, but also maybe being worried about finance. Yeah, it's it's hard to put pen to paper when your stomach is growling and the lights are going (laughs) off. So you may want to, you know, like you said, still at least keep something part time or, you know, you know, I've had I've had friends throughout, you know, their 20s. Sometimes they just move back in with their parents for a little bit just to give themselves that. Because, you know, no matter where you are, your biggest bill, I don't care how rich you are, um, unless you have already paid the more, like your mortgage and your rent are always going to be your biggest payments, right? So, um, you know, there are ways to get around it. But I, I agree with you. You can't just like completely jump out there and like not have... Um, you know, the right environment to write in <laughs> in yeah, the first place. Writing, just a lot of, it's a lot of work and you, it, there's definitely like a mental fortitude that comes with continuing on the days you have writer block on the days you're like, I don't know if this is going to work and you're questioning yourself or you're maybe dealing with imposter syndrome and you've got to continue to write anyway. So I think the additional stress of not knowing where your next meal is going to come from could be stressful. That being said, I know there are lots of people out there who are the type to wait until the very last minute before the project is due to start. Like, oh, my project is due in the morning. I'll start tonight. And if that is the way that you work and you have found success that way and you feel like you need that adrenaline to quit your job and start writing, more power to you. I am definitely not that person, but definitely (laughs) want people to know you don't have to wait to call yourself a writer. I'd say the second thing is to put yourself on a schedule and stick to it. It is so easy with something like writing to tell yourself, I'm going to, you know, finish my book in the next year. And then you get to the end of the year and realize my book ain't done yet. And I had, I had to be very strict with myself Mm-hmm. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever your schedule is for three hours every night, I'm going to sit there and write whatever distractions you have to tune out, you know, whatever, you know, dates you've got to give up and friend right. dates, whatever you've got to stick to a schedule because if you don't, it's incredibly hard to finish a project and it's really building a brick by brick piece. You, you're not going to sit down the first day and have your entire book. Matter of fact, you might sit down the first day and not write anything on the page at all. It might be just a lot of ideating and putting together Venn diagrams or outlines and you might spend three hours just thinking about how you want to start the story and then that's your three hours. So if you set a set schedule for yourself, I think that's incredibly helpful. And then the third piece of advice that I would definitely give is if you're thinking about adding something and something I've been doing for myself, if I'm thinking about adding a new thing to my plate, I've been asking myself, what is it going to cost me? And what do I need to take away? Mm. Because it can be so easy to add additional tasks without doing the breakdown of your time and saying, okay, up until this point, I've been living my life using all 24 hours and now I'm adding a new task. That means instinctually something's going to have to leave, whether Mm. that's 
watching TV for however many hours, or maybe it's a side gig that you've been doing, but something is going to have to be replaced. Like, what is it going to cost you? And I think taking time to figure that out was also really incredibly helpful for me. I stopped doing a lot of things. I wasn't on social media. I wasn't going to any events. Everybody that asked me to come to something, I was like, I'm sorry, I can't right now. I think I had to turn down a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of events between LA, DC, sometimes Atlanta. You were like, you're like, I have to set one. I have to, and I have to respect it. And I think if you just tell people, listen, this window, you know, I'm just not, unless it's like an emergency or something, I'm just not going to be available. And I think, you know, if people can't respect it, I actually think that sucks says more ab about, about them. So I, I think the people that care about you want to see you succeed. And like you said, to that point, want to keep you on those, those deadlines so that you can get it across the finish line. I think they'll, They'll, they'll definitely understand. So with that being said, you finished the book finally, right? I knew you were, you had actually, you had finished it. And I think you were doing edits because they sent you edits back. And it's like, oh my God, now I have to do the edits, right? So if you're listening, it's not enough to write the book. Even, even now I have helped my mom with a short story, collection of short stories about her experience as a black woman in the CIA. I finished probably the short stories maybe at the end of last year. We're now what month? August? It's been eight months and we have not done just like even the surface edit so that we can get it to get permission from the CIA to even give it to the um, the agent or the publisher or whatever. So like, because so many other things, like you said, have just got in, in front of it. Um, so yeah, there is, be prepared that there is a process, you know, I'm not even like the main writer. I'm really almost like her her transcriber, right? She's really the one telling the stories. And it's still hard, you know, because I have a million things going on. So to cut time out to help her with her project, it's, yeah, it can, it can be a lot. Uh, but with that being said, the book is done. It's out. Um, again, for listeners, therapy isn't just for white people. It is everywhere. It's on Amazon, you know, Barnes and Nobles. Uh, buy a couple of copies. In fact, in fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give away um, two copies. Um, so once I uh, this episode is published, uh, stay tuned on our social medias of how you can um, enter. I'm going to give away two copies because I love this book. I've been talking about this book. Like everyone, like, what are you doing? I'm reading her book. I'm reading her book. You got to get this book. Seriously. Like, even if I didn't know you, I was like, oh my God, I really relate to a lot of these stories. So I kind of just want to you know, I don't want to give it all away because obviously I want people to go and buy the book. Um, but I wanted to talk about a couple of issues um, that feed into not just what we're talking about today as it relates to mental health challenges of highly successful people, but also just specifically, uh, you know, the traumas that are fed into like... <laughs> Black psyche very early on that you don't realize like trickle down into other stuff, especially when you're trying to become this successful uh, Black individual. You don't realize it, it's like a hindsight thing that it could be something from your childhood. It could, it could just be something that like maybe stuck with you and didn't realize it that, tip, that typically impacts you. And I, and I think no matter, you know, obviously what race you are, if you're listening to this or you're reading her book, I think you will get that, that there's certain things that um, impact you early on that trickle down into your adulthood in terms of how you see things and how you interact. I think that lesson is universal um, and how it can obviously cause trauma. Again, I think that message is universal. Um, 
But as it relates specifically, um, you know, to Black women, because again, this is your perspective as a Black woman who entered therapy and tell the audience what you told your therapist when you first entered therapy. (laughs) So I went into therapy very cocky. It was a friend who had suggested that I should go because I was struggling with anxiety. So I sat in my first session, like, you know, I don't have any trauma. I'm not crazy. I'm very self-aware. I read a lot of self-help books. I'm, you're not going to have to worry about me like your other clients. Like, I actually think I'm very intellectual. I'm doing a lot of this work. I'm just here to talk about my anxiety. We don't have to dig into my past. I don't really have any <laughs> skeletons in my suitcase. Like, I'm healed, all the things. Let's just talk about the anxiety. Right. And obviously, over the course of my therapy sessions, very quickly realized that I was not completely healed, had a lot of trauma and micro traumas in my past that were still affecting me and that I was unaware of and this picture that I had painted for myself that I had no issues and nothing going on was incredibly untrue untrue and 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 that leads me into one of your uh one of the areas that you talk about in your book a lot uh, one is colorism and um you know we're both beautiful brown-skinned girls you know I think for us we have had obviously positive, positive necessarily, you know, images within our own household, you know, even outside. We we we've seen some positive images growing up, but it's it's still there. It's like it's 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 still kind of like you know, and and again, it's not just with um, Black Americans. It's with Indians. It's with Asians. The closer you are to being fair, it's like, I think, what is the, the saying? Like, white is right. Like, the closer you are to looking more European, it's just, that's just, that's just that standard of beauty. Um, and so I know that, you know, you talk about two experiences and you could just briefly talk of that, repeat them here, but like how very early on, even with your mom, talking to you about um your your mom has two sisters right it's three of them total and how you know some were fairer than the others and how you have you know your aunt who obviously is on broadway now and has done super well but growing up she had to already just had to have this placed on her that you know what you may not be treated the right way because you're darker skin we just want to give you a heads up be prepared that that, that had to be already ingrained in her how that could create a complex later if you're literally out of the womb already saying well just 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 be a warning you may be treated a little differently even even I don't know if you've read Gabrielle either one of Gabrielle Union's books that I think she talks about in her second book that people were like so concerned about the complexion of her child her 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 baby she struggled so long to have a baby I think she was like I don't care what the baby looks like I want the baby to be healthy I want the baby to be happy that's all she cared about but people were like looking at the the color of the, the the back of her child's ear. They were trying to figure. And I'm like, both of her parents are brown skin. And yes, two brown skin people can obviously have a fair skin child, but she's gotta be black. I mean, you know, yeah. like I'm not sure what they were like, you know, expecting. But like it, to me, that kind of made it weird. But could you talk more about like how specifically again in the black community, even I would say not even so much black men. And I'm not I'm not saying they don't have their hardships. But specific, specifically Black women and colorism, how that can, you know, affect just kind of like how you see see yourself and how that can, you know, impact some of your successes later on. Yeah, I think a lot of 
colorism is just internalized racism. And it, to your point, it is this idea, the closer you are to white, the better you are. And I, you know, grew up in Virginia and the South and had a lot of guy friends at UVA. A lot of them played football. And some of the things I'd listen to them say, hear them say, like, I'm, I've got to date a girl who's lighter than me because I don't want my kids to be darker than me. And these are black men who, you know, also grew up in the South. And I don't know that colorism is more prevalent in the South, but I just have heard more people talk about it in the South than I have up North. Uh, and just the way that you start to think about yourself, like, well, what is so bad about brown skin? Right. Who, who, who cares? cares? Right. I, yeah, I, I got it's Even though I grew up with my mom, she's lighter skin, she has green eyes. I never really thought deeply about color or colorism. I didn't think about myself as brown skin. I didn't think about her as light skin. I didn't think about my aunt Jeanette, my mom's sister, who's incredibly dark skin. And I do talk about in the book how people would be very confused when they were younger. Like, do you have the same mom and dad? How is it her skin is so light and her eyes are so light and you're so dark. How does that work? And I'm like, it's melanin. Melanin is unpredictable. You don't know. We're a range. We're a range. Yeah. <laughs> Hair, yeah. eyes, skin color. That's one thing that's beautiful about the Black race globally. You can have the darkest of the dark. You have the lightest of the light. You can have the curliest of the hair. You can have the kinkiest. It's just, like, we're just not, we're not monotone. We're not just one thing. And I actually think that's what makes, you know, Black people around the world so beautiful just because we 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 are we are such that range, but I, I like what you said. It's really more of a. It's really like an, it's more of an internal racism thing, like you said. Because here's the thing: white people know that at some level, you know, they have the superiority. You know, they colonize most of the world, so you already come in. Uh, what you talk about in the book with this white privilege, like you didn't ask for it, you didn't beg for it, even if you don't want it. If you're white, you just get the privilege. You automatically get it, right? And then if you're black, you automatically just get the disprivilege, whether you want it or not, right? Whether you could be the smartest person in the world, but there's certain disprivileges you'll always carry on your back. Even Barack Obama, and he's half white, okay, has the disprivilege of being, you know, a black person, you know? So I, it's, it's just amazing. It doesn't matter what we do, we're going to get it. And so... I like how you said that. It's really the internal thing that we do in the Black community that like, well, you know, this is the definition of whether, you know, what beauty and maybe what success looks like. And so, you know, we want to make sure it's as close as white to, as possible because we want to make sure we reach that success, whether it's, like you said, to get the football player, you know, I want to make sure I'm, a, I'm as light as possible so he'll marry me, you know, or if it's the career, well, I kind of want to look like them. I don't want to have a nose ring. I don't really want to have kinky hair. I want my hair to be straight. I want to kind of blend in as much as possible in corporate America because, you know, I, I want the success. So I think it really does tie into um, what we're talking about. Success across the board, whether it be personally, professionally, a lot of times um, we as Black people are reaching for white standards or white norms because we think that's what we need to do to get the success and, and I've, I've even heard black people you know talking about katanji who was just you know named to the supreme court saying her hair was not professional 
And this she's is actually worn her hair like that for a really long time. She, yeah. I almost feel like she's made it a point to do that too, to be honest. Exactly. Like, I, I think it's great. <laughs> and well, here we are criticizing her for not looking professional, but what is professional? Why her hair is kept, it's done, it's kept, is professional a certain texture? Is professional certain style? And how come those styles and textures aren't what Black people tend to do with their hair? Right, right. Um, and, and you have, you know, obviously a couple of chapters in here about hair, you know, the blondest hair, you know, even with, you know, looking at Barbie dolls from very on, like not wanting, you know, the black Barbie doll, but maybe wanting the white Barbie doll, your mom getting, you know, even offended that someone would give you a white Barbie doll, but you're like, no, that's what I want. That's what I want. And this is a child, you know, you as a child, you know, your mom can see the bigger picture and realize, okay, this is not good. She still needs representation right here, even in her bedroom, not to say that you can't have a white doll at all, but she was afraid that if that was all you were, you know, seeing, then you wouldn't think that you were beautiful. You wouldn't think, you know, cause you, you, there's no way you can see yourself in a doll that has this long, flowy blonde hair, you know, like you said, light eyes, like that's not you. So even, even, even though I still think that is a form of beauty, it's, it's still not you. And so you know, I know there's a story in your book about, you know, the doll and um, even just just generally speaking, how a lot of times, sometimes, even though the irony with hair, and I, I'll just, I just have to put this out there. The, the, the person that wore like weaves and wigs first were really like white actresses and celebrities like Farrah Fawcett and things like that. So it's so ironic that they were kind of the first to kind of wear the pieces and the wigs and stuff, at least on that scale. But it's like if a black woman puts clips in their hair or gets braids or extensions or, you know, weaves and things like that, it's like, it's like so tabbed. Like, that's not your hair. I'm like, you look in the magazine, you look in the movies, most of those white people, that's not their hair. That's, I mean, they're adding because it's, it, 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 it is an accessory. And even I had to start to like embrace the fact that, you know what, if I want to go a little longer today and put in a braid or if I want to put in a clip who cares? Who cares? Like, it doesn't make me like less than, right? Because I'm adding this accessory. It's just like makeup. It's just like, it's just like anything else. Um, But it took me a long time to like, even embrace that, even just the, not just what it would be accepted in corporate America, but just having that self-confidence in myself. And so, um, you know, I, I, you have so many chapters about hair in the book that I think that was really important. The only other thing I wanted to mention in terms of like kind of all standards of beauty, whether it be hair or skin or complexion or whatever, you know, you talk about a few experiences as a as a pageant queen, and I know we we both um, have done have done pageants. Um, tell tell our audience a little bit, just generally, what you felt like. I mean, obviously you had some successes in it, but like like the struggle it was to kind of keep going. I'm sure at some point it was like, okay, maybe, you know. It's like, let me let me stop beating down a door. This is what they want, and I don't look like it. So, yeah. Yeah, so I would also start by saying I had a lot of great experiences with pageantry. I think just being able to walk into room, knowing who I am, being very confident in what I have to say and what I have to offer, a lot of that came from pageantry, and I'm incredibly thankful for that. But competing in very traditional spaces, Miss Virginia America, Miss Virginia USA, there was definitely a Eurocentric standard of beauty that was pushed, not even lightly, but I would say very heavily. And it's only recently that we've started to see 
black women compete with natural hair. And even when we do see it, it's usually black women who have very long, wavy, slight curls. We don't see a lot of 4C kinky hair in competition. We still have not decided as a society that that is kept and beautiful and all of the things that I believe that it is. But you know, 10 years ago, especially, you know, competing in pageants, everybody had straight hair. And I worked out with trainers who would say things like, you know, you, because of you, because of what you look like, you've got more junk in the trunk and a little more thigh. And that's going to be a challenge for us, but don't worry, we'll get through it. And thinking to myself, well, I like having a little bit of a booty. Like, why right, do I don't I want to be like completely flat. Right. <laughs> why do I have to, to get rid of that in order to be beautiful? And I remember my last one of, or was it the last time? No, it was the first time I ever competed in Miss Virginia USA. And I made top five oh, wow. and we were answering on stage questions. And they asked me something that had to do with our political system. And I went into this whole answer about our bipartisan political system and why I did not believe that it was the most effective form of government because it caused people to create factions and move further apart. And then we become more aligned with parties and we are with issues. And I got a standing ovation for my answer because, you know, not to be stereotypical, but most pageant answers tend to be like, I believe in democracy. And America is a beautiful place and I will always stand by America. So right. people were just very shocked that I could speak very specifically to how I felt in the political space. And I walked away fourth runner up and I remember talking to the director of the pageant after and she said, we could not crown you because you sounded too smart. None of the judges even understood what you were saying. We can't have a Miss Virginia USA that people can't understand. So if you're going to come back next year, we're going to keep it simple. simple. Tone it down. down. Exactly. And that was so shocking to me. And I decided that if that's what it was going to take to, to walk away with the crown, that I was completely unwilling. And I did continue to compete and had some successes, but kept getting similar feedback. I remember the next year, when I competed um, and, you know, also made the top, I answered something and I used the word feminism. And one of the judges after was like, sweetie, I don't even know exactly what feminism means. What do you mean by that? Like women who are acting like men. And I thought to myself, okay, th- yeah. there's only so far I'm, I'm going to get here. Yeah. So it was a combination of Eurocentric standards of beauty, but also I don't need you to be too smart or to shine too bright. We need you to fit this very specific box of somebody that we can control in order for you to be successful in the system. I think that's a good transition. I have just a few more questions about your book and we'll close out. Um, I think it's a good transition to, again, there's so much in your book. Um, So I think it's a good transition to being just in spaces in general. Um, you have a couple of stories about being in spaces with different friend groups, right? Having your black friend group versus your white friend group and struggling to like, you know, like, you know, having to turn on and turn off. And again, you you know, some people, you know, don't live in the South, never lived in the South. And so they may not understand like, like how much of an issue it really is. Um, because I feel like, even outside the South, I still feel like I've felt that way, but definitely in the South, you probably would feel that way, that you are going to have these different groups. Um, and there's this level of 
again, I mean, this is all in the last whatever, 10 or 15 years, right? So it's not like it's 100 years ago. There's still this level of segregation. Um, so it's interesting that your book talks about how we still kind of segregate. Among, not that there's a rule that we need to segregate, but like you talk about segregation amongst your friend groups, but then you also talk about segregation even with uh, UVA and how we have this famous stop called the Black Bus Stop. And again, if you don't go to UVA, if you had saw the title, you probably didn't know what it was. But if you went to UVA, you immediately knew what it was. And, you know, after reading the chapter, I'm like, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize how much of an issue, kind of like that was in hindsight, that we had like a whole stop dedicated to where the Black people hung out and how maybe that wasn't like the best thing. I don't know. It didn't occur to me at the time. I thought it was just like, the cool thing, you know, this is where you could be seen and wear your outfits and, you know, talk to the guys and things like that. And, you know, I would like literally plan my outfit. If I knew I was going past that stop, I could not be looking raggedy. I could not be looking crazy. I had all my outfits planned, like super OCD, um, which most of my audience already knows I'm super OCD. So, yeah, I just, if, if you could just talk about how even now, probably still in 2020, I'm pretty sure the Black Bus Stop is still at UVA. I'm, just, I'm sure it's still oh, yeah. there. Um, uh, how we, you know, this whole self-segregation thing, because again, there's no rule that we need to segregate at this point. Why are we still doing it? Yeah, it's such a great question. And I think in some spaces, minorities don't always feel safe or welcomed fully in white spaces. So we create our own spaces where we can feel safe and be ourselves and not worry about the white gaze or being judged or having to prove our worth. And so I think there's a piece of it that just comes from, from that, right? Like wanting to be able to just relax and be you. Uh, but I think it, it is interesting at a school like UVA, because for a lot of people, you, because of there are so few people of color there, you're generally in spaces where you're also in relationship with non-Black people. So you almost develop this segregated personality like I'm this person with my black friends. I'm going to go to the student activities building. We're going to twerk and look <laughs> up. But then I'm this person with my white friends and we're going to quote legally blonde and talk about where we're going for J term. or We're going to study abroad. And it's so easy to just become two people. And I think that's the piece that can be really damaging jumping from person to person and in the black community we do do a lot of code switching and I understand where code switching comes from right like we just want to be able to speak the language of the people we're speaking to we want to be fully understood but if you're not able to live as your fully integrated self there are pieces of you that you're probably burying that really need to be on display but you're afraid to put them on display because you're like, this is the wrong group. So I had to relearn how to show up in the world in a way that I could be the same person around my black friends and my white friends. And once I started, I think living what I would call more integrated and just showing up as the most authentic. And, and tell us about how old were you when you actually, because you mentioned it, it was like your late 20s, right? When you finally said, you know yeah. what, I'm just going to be the same person in each group. Screw it. If you don't like it, you don't, if you don't get my references, you don't get your uh, references. I'm not going to exactly. change. Yeah. It was like okay. maybe 27, 28. It was later in life because for, to your point, yeah, references for a long time. I'm like, oh, 
these white people haven't seen this black movie. So I don't want to reference it. But I started thinking to myself, when they reference stuff that I don't know, they don't not reference it. They just assume that I know what they're talking about. They assume that I know the share song or that I've been to a Celine Dion concert. They're not consciously moving through the life, carrying the burden of trying to make sure the person they're speaking to understands all of the cultural references. And it's just an unnecessary burden to carry, especially if you are a highly successful person. And when it comes to success, I think it's the same question I asked earlier about if you're going to write a book, what is it going to cost you? Success costs you something. For a lot of us, it costs us at the very least time uh, and a lot of energy. If you're spending a lot of time and energy on your career, you don't have the time and energy to be worried about people getting your cultural references. They either get it or they don't get it. Right. And they can ask if they don't know. It's no big deal. Like you said, don't look, we already have enough to carry, which is uh, one of my final questions to you about disprivileged versus privilege. We talked about it a few seconds ago. We already have enough to carry just being born in this world as black, you know, so the minute you're born, you come out of your mother's womb, you're a black person, you're already going to carry stuff, right? So why are you adding on like this burden of making sure this person's okay and they're figuring it out? And, you know, like, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's the best way to recap it for someone that's listening to this that don't feel like, you know, you have to continue to switch back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. At some point, you just have to show up as your authentic self. And if you have questions, don't feel, you know, afraid to engage or answer things or explain things. But also to your point, you make this point at your uh, book signing very clear. It's also not your burden to feel like you have to always explain, like, I mean, you can choose to, but also feel like if you that. don't, right, if you don't feel like explaining, you also don't have to carry that too, because that's also creating um, another burden. So the one of the, the, the last areas I want to talk to you about in your book that, again, that I think are just like common things, like we just talked about colorism, we just talked about, you know, kind of like self-segregation, segregation, how we, we, we do those things. Another common theme, again, is like white privilege versus um, Black disprivilege. And it's funny because I, I, I don't think so. I want to say reading your book was the first time, like I've always heard of white privilege, like always. I mean, I think like if you're Black even like there's literally a hashtag hashtag white privilege you know like so I think we all know like what white privilege is and when it when it's said but I think your book does a really good job of introducing really the idea of black disprivilege right because um you know for everything there's an opposite you know for there where there's a plus there's a minus you know so um and I think your book does a really good idea of really diving more into what that Black just privileges. So for our audience that's listening, how do you best define that, A, and B, um, you know, if you are specifically a Black person becoming highly successful, and again, you're always going to be in spaces where a lot of people don't look like you. So it could be law, it could be medicine, becoming an author, any, any, any successful field. It, you're typically, even producers, you know, there are not that many Black producers or Black directors or Black writers. So like, Knowing that you're getting ready to go, right, into this field where it's probably not going to be a lot of people look, look look like you, how you balance that. So first, how you define it and then how, you know, as you're becoming highly successful, how do you balance that Black disprivilege? 
Yeah, I would say that if white privilege we kind of coin as a collection of privileges that white people inherently get just because of their whiteness, black disprivilege is the disprivileges that we're forced to deal with just because we're inherently born with darker skin and more African features. And so much of the conversation around white privilege, I, I think, is very interesting because it still centers whiteness. It's not really centering the black experience. And we need white people to understand absolutely that they have a collection of privileges, but them understanding that still, still does not speak to what we're going through as black people. It doesn't speak to discrimination and that, that we're facing. It doesn't speak to the fact that no matter how educated or successful we are, when we walk into a room, we're already up against preconceived notions and stereotypes based upon how smart we are, what we're capable of, what 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 we can handle, what we can't handle, simply based on the color of our skin. And that, I think, reclaims the conversations and centers the Black experience as opposed to the white experience. I think dealing with, with the Black disprivilege at the beginning, it made me very angry. Why should I have to work twice as hard to prove myself? Why should I have to prove to you once you've hired me at this job and thought, you know, said that I was qualified, that I deserve to be here so that people don't think I was just a minority hire? Why am I having to always go the extra step to make sure you see me as competent and as smart? I have a story in my book where I talk about having to go to the ER because I was dealing with some really terrible pains, some medical issues. And one of the first things my mom said was, well, you've got to change out of those clothes. You've you've got to put on nicer clothes because if you go to the hospital in a t-shirt and sweatpants, they're not going to treat you well. Like you need them to take you seriously. And the fact that I'm thinking about how the doctors and nurses are going to receive me when I'm hunched over crying in pain and changing my outfit, because as a black person, if, if we don't show up looking like the best version of ourselves, we're bums, we're not smart, we're homeless, all of the things. And so have it thinking through black disprivilege the way that I've been able to cope with it most recently is to number one, acknowledge that it exists and acknowledge that it's there. I think I've not that I've started to expect people to be surprised or to be biased, but I've stopped telling myself, I can't believe this happened because the truth is it's happened to me over and over again. And it's happened to a lot of other people over and over again. And if you're familiar with Martise Johnson, who I talk about in my book, it was a UVA student who was thrown to the ground because of a fake ID and you had police officers who were bashing his head into the cement. And one of the things that he's screaming out is I go to UVA as if his education is going to protect him because we've been told that if you're educated and you're successful, people then you're will, okay. Yeah. Right. People will accept right. you. But at that, at that point, when, when somebody is making a snap judgment about who you are, they're not asking for your resume. They don't know what you've accomplished and haven't accomplished all these things in Slack. So right. I definitely go into situations now not being surprised and kind of uh, expecting that people are going to see me a certain way because I'm Black. And I think that allows me to be able to show up in a way that feels mentally prepared as opposed to being taken back every time it happens. Like, Cause you oh my God. Keep, Cause you're going to keep getting angry. You don't want to do that. You don't want to keep getting angry. And it's funny that you said this story about, uh, uh, about your mom saying you need to change your clothes. Cause I know you also mentioned in the book that even the doctor said, well, I guess I can't let you die. Cause you know, he learned that you were a lawyer on your demographics on your thing. I had a similar experience. Um, 
in the hospital, um, I was actually walking, got hit by a car, like not in a car, I was walking, the car actually hit me while I was crossing the street, which it's almost like being struck by lightning. Like it's very rare for adults to get hit by a car. Like to this day, I'm still just like, this is like one of the most random things that happened to me, right? And everything obviously happens for a reason, but I, because I was black, again, at the time, they didn't know I was a lawyer right away. They didn't know certain things, My, like you said, my stats, right? I'm just entering Howard Hospital, which at the time I did want to go to. I was like, no, I don't want to go to Howard. I want to go to Washington Hospital Center. And they took me to Howard because it was the closest in D.C. And, you know, it's mostly Black doctors, Black hospital. And they would not give me pain medication because they were like, well, a lot of people that come here, they're on drugs. So I'm like, I'm sorry. What does that have to do with me? I've been hit by a car. My leg is broken in several places. You better give me some medicine. And they're like, well, we're going to have to like really like check with the doctor. I've been hit by a car. They didn't want to give me, and I felt so bad because the lady across from me, again, a black woman, they didn't want to give her pain medicine either. And it was like, I, you know, my, my, my family hates it, but I pulled the, you know, pulled the lawyer card. And I was like, if you don't want this to be, you know, you know, the Jay Carter Hospital, like you don't want my, if you don't want to get sued, <laughs> my name's gonna be on this hospital. What I'm done with you guys? I want to talk to a doctor, right? Now. This is me still being hit by a car, and I'm still being feisty. I'm like, I want to talk to a doctor right now. You send a doctor in here. I'm a lawyer. Da, da, da. And the minute I said that, complete disposition, everything changed. They immediately, you know, transferred me to Washington Hospital. So I got everything I wanted. But I felt so bad for the lady across from me. She just decided to discharge herself because mm. they weren't going to give her the medicine. So, you know, like you said, I think a big part of, you know, if you know that you're going to be highly successful, you know, yeah, build that resume, you know, you know, check your boxes in terms of your accomplishments and things that you want to do, whether it be educational, professional wise, but just understand literally every highly successful driven place, medicine, lawyer, director, whatever, anything. You you just have to accept that when you walk through the door, there's just already going to be that just privilege there. Don't be surprised by it. And then, you know, like you said, work through ways of, like you said, you can't control what other people are doing, but you can control your reaction. Learning how to control your reaction. Um, and I think that is what kind of leads me um, kind of to my final question, which is really about um, accepting that maybe you can't figure out everything on your own um, and accepting that maybe you need therapy. Because again, your book is called, you know, Therapy Isn't Just for White People. Um, so, you know, speaking to, you know, highly successful people, if you're, if you're non-white, um, you know, I know particularly in the Black community, um, you know, it's like, well, just talk to Jesus and, uh, you know, or talk to your parents. Um, but don't talk to anybody else. Like my mother, literally to this day, don't burden your friends. Don't burden your friends with your issues. Like, you know, some of your friends, they're married now. They have kids. They can't. I'm like, these people are calling me. These people are checking out. Am I supposed to be like silent on the phone and like not say? So I have even been conditioned from my mom not to tell people when I'm feeling bad. You know, she's like, just tell me. You know, just tell God, don't tell anybody else. Don't tell anybody else. And I know a part of her is protecting me because what people don't know, they can't use against you. So I do think you should be careful what you tell people. Um, and also something that we, we kind of joked about before we uh, 
decided to to do this interview that you know I'm constantly so I'm constantly on your Instagram like liking things and reposting things is super exciting and congratulating you and we were just talking about how like we have to be our own cheerleaders like we have to kind of like hype ourselves up because there's so many people that even just look like us that don't celebrate us will never congratulate you they may look at your post they won't like it they won't comment on it um they may go to your story to see what you're doing but like We'll never congratulate you. Never, ever. And I know some of that is, you know, being ambitious. People feel like if they're not doing certain things, it's a reflection of maybe that they're not doing it. So it's like that secret thing. But like, I think for me, it's 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 giving me a little bit of a complex. Because I know, here's the thing. I know that you should just be doing what you're doing, Right for yourself and your family and, and, you know, and whoever, and the people that you love you. And if everybody else comes along and congratulates you, fine. But at some level, I think highly success. We, we do it because we do want the, you know, the congratulations. We do want the, you know, the accolades or people to be happy for us. And, and I, and I think even with my own therapy journey, I've had to learn that, it just may not happen that way. So that's my very long way of, again, asking, um, again, if you're highly, a highly successful person, especially with high pressure jobs, like definitely the medical and the legal profession for sure. Um, but there's so many professions that are highly driven where, you know, um, you're going to have a lot of stress and you're going to be expected to just not only achieve, but just keep, it's almost like you have to keep one upping ourselves. Um, and when is, when is it time to be like, all right. Maybe I need to go to therapy. No, I'm not crazy. Like I said, I'm not crazy or anything like that. But I clearly have some anxieties. I have some traumas. I have like, I know there's certain triggers for me. You know, sometimes I just take a break from social media because I have just certain triggers, right? So what, when is it time for, you think, a highly successful person to enter therapy? When do you think is a good time? today right now <laughs> and and I say that because I think there are generally two camps of people who are not in therapy but can afford therapy right because I think there are lots of people who want treatment and access to mental health care is not always there for people but to the people who can access it in some capacity I think there are people who are are in the closet with their struggles they're dealing with anxiety or depression or imposter syndrome or whatever else. And they don't talk about it. Pretend it doesn't happen. They sweep it under the the rug. They hope it's just going to go away. And it continues to come up probably at the most inopportune times. And they really need someone to talk to. On the other side, I think there are people who don't even realize that they're struggling and it might just show up in inability to focus or not doing your best work and you don't know why, or I'm just not motivated anymore and I don't know why. Just questions that you can't answer and you don't necessarily connect it to anything mental health wise, but you know, there's a struggle. Like I'm usually really good at X, Y, and Z, but for whatever reason right now, I just can't, I just can't get through this. I don't know why. And for, I think that group of people specifically with a lot of highly successful people, we use success as a coping mechanism. We use it to feel good about ourselves. You might grow up in a world where brown skinned people or black people are dealing with a lot of traumas or not you know, seen as beautiful or not given the same opportunities. But if you're successful, then you get an accolade. 
if you're successful, society will care about you. I talk about it with my aunt Jeanette, who's on Broadway now, even throughout history, even when we had uh, the civil rights you know, you know, movement and black people were not allowed in bars, they'd still bring in a black singer to sing. She's, they got to come through the back door. They're not going to be able to sit and eat with everybody else. And their people, their friends are probably not going to be able to stand up front with the white counterparts, but they're still going to let a black person perform. So I think black people who are incredibly successful have always been given a sort of pass in some capacities. So for a lot of people, you're achieving because you get this adrenaline rush and it feels good and other things in your life might not be going well but at least you're successful relationship might be falling apart family life might not be good you might not have great interactions with your coworkers, but you got the promotion so you can fall back on that and it can be a beautiful thing but if your goal really is to show up as the best version of yourself we see it happen all the time where the issues that you've buried do come up at the very worst times and we, we, we call it self-sabotage. This person was so close to X, Y, and Z, and then they self-sabotage. Why would they do that? Why would this celebrity fall to drunkenness? How, how could that happen? How could they let this opportunity go like that? Why are they, you know, Chris Brown making all these reckless decisions? He's so successful. All he had to do was get it together, but it's not easy to get it together. And a lot of times we need help. A lot of times we don't even know why we're not together. We can't even pinpoint the problem, much less come up with the solution and talk through it for ourselves. And so I think a lot of therapy is also just really doing the work of being prepared so that when you do have hard life situations, because we're all going to have them, that's not a moment where everything you spend your life building crumbles because you don't have the tools you need to get through it. It's actually giving you the tools to make sure all of the work that you've put in, all of the sacrifices you've made, the years of schooling, you'll actually be able to sit in and take full advantage of that space and be able to walk through that door as the best version of yourself and not putting yourself at higher risk of losing it all because you haven't done the mental work that needs to happen. It's funny that you say that because I know you even mentioned at your book signing, I know you just mentioned Chris Brown, but like even someone closer to us, like like a Chesley Chris, who was a Miss USA and a lawyer and, you know, a pageant girl and, you know, very, very similar background to us. And, you know, even though I think at one point she was in therapy, like it just, she had a moment and couldn't come back from it. And she made a decision, you know, uh, to commit suicide in a very just painful way. Um, and I'm just, it's like, you have, you have to be really careful because you can get in a moment and in a split decision, make a decision that you can't come back from. And let's talk too about just the, the fact that lawyers are much more likely to be alcoholics. We're much more likely to, to turn to alcohol. Why is that? Right. And I, I've had moments where, you know, I feel like I'm being attacked or I'm being, you know, the wrong things are being said or I'm having, you know, I've had several issues over the last couple of years. I don't talk about it publicly, but I've had a lot of like disputes, like a lot of like legal business disputes with people that I thought I knew really well and would never do that to me that have done it to me. And it probably hurts. I think if it was probably a stranger, it probably would, I mean, it was still, I would still be upset, but it probably wouldn't hurt as much. I think because I actually knew these people. Um, and so just fighting those like accusations or fighting disputes and things like that, it's, I'll be honest, it's worn on me to the point where, unless it's like 
Oprah and Oprah, if you're listening, um, unless it's like Oprah, it has to be someone at that level for me to want a partner. Like I don't see myself having too many more business partners. I actually don't even see myself taking on any more, like really any more clients. I've had so many issues with a variety of these types of parties that at some level it's traumatizing. Like I have to go to therapy based on some of these situations. So like, I think for me, when I'm feeling like, oh my God, I'm getting to a place where I just don't want to go on. Like I don't necessarily want to hurt myself, but I just don't want to be here anymore. Like whatever that means, I just don't want to be here. When I'm, I'm starting to think that way, like, I have to like reach out to certain friends. Like I have a friend, she's actually, you know, they're not that many black psychologists, um, you know, and I owe her probably like a million dollars once I become rich. But I, um, you know, when I'm not in a formal session, I'm constantly tapping into her because I get into these really dark spaces and she's like trying to like, thank goodness I have someone that can pull me out. And I'm thinking someone like Chelsea didn't have someone like that that she thought she could reach out to to help pull her out but she again went to a low place like again made a decision and decided she was going to stick with it no matter what that's why she didn't tell anybody and she now she can't come back from it and so anytime I'm in that low place I think about her I, I'll be honest with you I think about her when I get to a certain low place I'm like don't make a decision that you can't come back from whatever that is it doesn't necessarily even have to be suicide but don't do anything like just Take a B, take a B. I like what you said about like, whatever is happening, don't, it's not going to just like ruin everything you've built up to this point. Like your life doesn't have to be over. Everything you've worked up, you're going to throw that out of the window because of this one situation. Like sometimes you just have to take a B, even if you're not in their uh, traditional therapy just yet, you have to take a B and put things in perspective. But I definitely think therapy is really a tool. It's really a tool to help you do that. And it should be looked upon, like you said, more in the Black community as a good thing, not not, not a bad thing. And I, and I definitely think um, that your book obviously will, um, you know, take away some of those stigmas and encourage people, again, highly successful, specifically highly successful people um, to seek out therapy. And if it doesn't do anything else, I think it's definitely going to do that. I definitely, you're going to get a lot of people. I think, you know, psychiatrists at this point need to pay you a referral fee. <laughs> I think you're driving a lot of people to their, to the, to their offices. So with that being said, um, is there, you know, we've obviously been talking about the book throughout. Is there anything else going on? Is there anything maybe going on with the book that you would like the audience to know? I know you did like a signing in LA, um, should we expect that maybe you'll be doing maybe some other live events with the book or, you know, what, what can we expect about the book or anything else you would like to tell the audience that you're working on? Yeah, stay tuned. You can follow me on Instagram at Kiara Imani Will. I have a lot of fun events and stuff that I'm putting together. I also have an Instagram live series that starts tomorrow. It'll be Wednesdays every day at 3 p.m. PST. Uh, talking to a variety of really fun guests. I'll have some uh, celebrity guests pop in there that I'm really excited about too. So make sure you're you're tuning in. And I'll be talking about a lot of the themes from my book and letting other people, especially people in the industry, highly successful people, talk about how colorism and being Black in corporate America and faith, I talk a lot about faith, how those things have affected their journey, because I do think it's important for us to be students of Black stories. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. That's how we move forward. Um, and I'm also in the process of talking, having some conversations about adapting the book for television, which I'm super excited about. 
So stay tuned for that. Yes, I am excited. And the in the series, it isn't necessarily a name. It's just on your personal. And and, and I forget, your Instagram is is it just Kiara Imani? Kiara Imani will. Kiara okay, will. 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 Yeah. I'm sorry, will. So you have to put W I L L um at the end of her Instagram. Yes. So check her out. Check out her series moving forward. You know, every week, I think that's excited that there's a potential to adapt it as a book. It definitely gives me. Um, you know, for people that haven't read the book yet, but they're going to read the book because I'm also giving away two copies with this episode. Um, it does it definitely gives me like when you um, read um, uh, kind of in the beginning, early stages of um, Issa Rae with Insecure, where she would do like the short skits on YouTube. But then she figured out a way to like really put it together, to put it into like, you know, like an actual show that you could watch each week with like, you know, multiple characters and storylines and things like that. So definitely a lot of your stories, like, I can like visualize, like I'm like over here hollering, yelling, like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened, you know? So I can definitely see how some of the stories could definitely be like rec recreated into some sort of um, story. And I'm I'm excited to see what's to come. You know, my audience will be following you. Obviously, you guys can continue to follow the Your Fab Life podcast through our main Instagram page, I am Legally Fab. Uh, we have resources for professionals, whether you're becoming an entrepreneur, or you're trying to advance in your career. And obviously, this podcast is a companion to the, uh, the platform to help uh, professional women. So um, from one professional woman to another, one highly successfully driven woman to another, um, I appreciate that you took the time to come on and speak about your book. And like I said, we will stay tuned to what's next from you. Awesome. Thank you for having me. This was Thank great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Your Fab Life. Until next time, please make sure to follow us on all our social media handles at at I am legally fab. Take care.